0: So go to Amazon on March 8th, and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late, and you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Matt Drinkon. Welcome back to another episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast, where our mission is to inspire hope. Our mission is to inspire a you-can-do-it-too attitude by sharing stories of people who've undergone a transformation, they've overcome or endured major heartache and major challenge, and they've gotten through it. And they are inspiring us with their mission and their vision today. And I have such a guest today. It is my real treat and pleasure to bring to you Mr. Jonathan And I'm going to read a little bit about Jonathan here and maybe blow up his ego a little bit because he has an impressive bio. And I'll tell you something amazing at the end of this bio that will just shock you. Let's see here. So Jonathan has 15 years of experience dedicated to pioneering the innovative Eden energy process. He's the founder and the founding partner of multiple companies. He has a diverse background in scientific technology. His expertise extends from the technology behind the Eden energy process to significant contributions in the field of stem cells and permaculture. These are words we've talked about before, team. So by the way, this, this is just a little bit of the bio so far. I'm getting excited. Having lived abroad for over five years, Jonathan gained a global perspective that enriches all of his work. As a biologist with a background in process and mechanical engineering, he's conducted research with world-renowned institutions such as MIT, Harvard, Levi University, Brookhaven National Labs, and, and I think I'm going to get this right. Tube Attack, which is the national lab of Turkey, right? Jonathan, he also has his wealth of knowledge in business development and sales and marketing. He's a well-rounded entrepreneur and leader in this field. And something else about him, here's the shocking part. He's only at this age 34 today, and he's done all of this stuff internationally. And it's a real pleasure. We've had a little conversation for a few minutes, a real pleasure to bring him on. So without any further ado, Jonathan, welcome to the show, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great,
1: Matt. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's always interesting when you hear somebody else talk about your background and, as you said, inflate the ego a little bit. So I definitely appreciate the kind words and the the marvelous introduction.
0: Yeah, well, my pleasure. And so I want to challenge you on something already. You said that you're having a great day already. What goes into that answer? Like, why do you say today is a great day for you already, Jonathan?
1: there won't be many days where you find me saying it's a terrible day, even when things really aren't going my way. I still wake up every day and feeling blessed to just be able to get to do what I get to do. A previous guest you've had on your show is somebody who I've had a lot of experience with. His name is Jim Gale. And Jim said something to me early on when I started working with him that has really resonated with me for the past several years. And it's that we get to do this. It's not all I have to wake up and I have to work today. I get to do this. So you have people, all around always dreaming of chasing their dreams and being able to do the job or work the job that they want to work. And I get to wake up every day and that is what I do. So every day is a great day. I'm usually up by 5 a.m. most days. I don't use an alarm clock. And at 5.15, I'm ready to go either at the gym or trying to run a little bit because I've put on a few pounds sitting behind the computer as much as I have the past couple of years. So just trying to keep myself yes. in shape mentally and physically. But every day has to be a great day when you get to do what I get to do.
0: That's the most awesome answer ever. I love it. I'm going to rant on this for a minute. The idea of we get to do this. I get that every day. I take it from a position of gratitude. I think a foundational core value is gratitude of being really grateful that I get to do this. I get to have an impact on other people. I get to coach people. I get to be here and meet cool guests like you today, Jonathan. I get to do it even when I don't feel great, even when someone is upset, even when someone doesn't follow through on their commitments, even when the weather is bad or even when the government takes more money on out of my tax check than I thought I owe more and they change it up on me. I didn't understand it. Even when I feel judged from someone who doesn't quite understand the whole story, even when still grateful for that because I get to do this. I get to live in this life and get to do what we do. So I love your answer. And like any great optimist or any person who is a leader had success, you have had to overcome some hard stuff. And I want to start our conversation today with the hard stuff that you have seen or endured. You can take us back to childhood. You can take us to right now, something hard. But tell us the story, Jonathan, about something that is incredibly difficult or, or challenging for you in your life to date, please.
1: Well, to put it simply, I believe I'm one of the most blessed scientists on the planet with the experiences I've gotten to to have at this point in my life, right? I'm young but I've worked with some of the world's foremost industries, foremost scientists, foremost businesses, and gotten to conduct research and and done a lot of really amazing stuff in the short time I've been on this earth, right? But when it comes to doing something new and the companies that I've been a part of starting since right out of college, it was a family business that I helped. It actually wasn't just getting started when I first started, but we had a new iteration launch and I've been a part of launching several organizations throughout my career. And every time. it wasn't something where I can look up how to do something. We were launching either a new technology, a new way of doing something. You mentioned stem cells. Right out in 2018, I got involved with a stem cell startup that was looking at a completely revolutionary new way of producing stem cells using physical forces. So there was no literature that I could go to study how to do it. There was nobody else doing it, especially when we look at the Eden energy process. The only people doing this on the planet is my family and the people that we've worked with in the past. So every time that I've done something, I've never really been able to lean on literature, lean on past experiences from other people. I've had to experience it and go through it myself. So I guess the hardest part that I've had to overcome is constantly improving and learning to the point where I can understand what I'm working. Because such a vast background that I've had to accumulate for all the technologies that I've done, it's been a constant process. I was very sociable as a younger kid, but the last 10 years, uh, I've just had to bury myself into education and work because it was the only way that I could get to where I am today. So I guess the isolation associated with constantly pushing forward to be the best person that I possibly can be has been the hardest part, right?
0: Overcoming all the challenges thrown my way. What I'm hearing right now is through every company you've started or been a part of so far, you said constantly improving and working on, I would call it the manual, because there was none. Can't go to YouTube, but how do I do this with stem cells? How do I do this with this energy process? You've had to create, and I imagine there's a lot of walls you ran into, you bumped your head, and you had to turn around and go a different direction and try to just figure it out. So... And the isolation that comes with what I'm feeling is really the challenge. Yeah. That sounds tough because it sounds like if we get straight into this Eden energy process, which has been fascinating to go down the rabbit hole today with this. If we get to it, the idea of being able to create something that serves the planet, that helps all of us and do it by turning waste into energy. It sounds like this amazing idea that once somebody figures that out, it's going to revolutionize and change the entire planet. Right. And come to find out that is you. That is what you are doing. So how did that dream or that vision come to fruition? How did that start? And walk us on that path. I'd love to explore it with you, Jonathan. Well, the technology has been,
1: or I should call it the process, because it's really not a technology, okay. per se. it's a process. It's several technologies basically smushed into one process flow that allow everything to happen. And the process has been under development for about 25 years. It was originally started to be pushed forward by my father in 1997. And my father is a serial entrepreneur as well. So is my mother. And those are the people that I had to look up to in my life. I I had two parents that were both entrepreneurs, both extremely hardworking, but they were not the Disney dad or the Disney mom that many in my position would have grown up with. People here that I grew up and I was a member at a country club and all these things, and they're like, "Oh, he's a silver spoon kid." But then they hear about how my father worked me and all the things I had to do. Saturday mornings, I wasn't watching cartoons with a lot of kids my age. Where I was outside building stuff, building decks, working on my parents' garden. Because even though my father had means, he was of the mindset: if I could do something and I have the time for it, I'm not going to pay somebody to do it. Weekends were family time, so we did a lot of work together between gardening and building and learning how to drywall, electrical, and all these different pieces that I grew up doing. Yes, I was always provided for if ever, all my needs were always met, but I wasn't given a new pair of shoes every week. If I, I didn't get my first cell phone until I was a sophomore in high school. So it, it wasn't like I was just handed everything. I had to earn everything. As a young kid, my mother had a gift and collectible store and I had to work in there at 12 and 13 years old helping customers. So I was always being taught the value of entrepreneurship, the value of working hard. But if we look back at my father, he grew up very poor. The only reason my father went to college was he was a six foot five point guard basketball player, right? So he got a full scholarship and that's why he went to school. And right out of school, he got a job working for Russell Stovers, became salesman of the year his first year out of school, met a really wealthy Broadway influencer of the day on a plane who was starting a ticket company. Back then it was called Ticket World and Ticket World became Ticketmaster and my father ended up becoming the founding EVP of Ticketmaster. In 84, Paul Allen and a couple other people came in to buy, to turn it into Ticketmaster. And my father was an old hippie. He said, I have no interest in working for Wall Street or bankers. So he has to be bought out and had a pretty big windfall and ended up in Mexico, Tanitza, the big Mayan temple. And during the spring equinox, the temple is lined up perfectly. So the shadow that gets casted is the serpent god, Kukukan, crawling down the, the temple. And my father was there with my mother during this rainy spring equinox. And he was getting this little tour. The little Mayan girl said, to him, sir, it's time to go back to the temple. And my father said to him, it's raining, we're not going to see anything. And she said words to him that I've heard more times than I ever care to mention. But she said to him, no, sir, you don't understand the power of the Maya. And they went back Ah. to the temple. Sure enough, there was a crack of thunder, the sky opened up, the shadow crawled down the temple signifying the, the new year, the sky closed up and it started raining and my father had a spiritual awakening like nobody can imagine. And, and over the next about 10 years, he spent a lot of time going down there, has dug his own Mayan artifacts out of the jungle, can read the Mayan hieroglyphics, all these different really cool stuff when it comes to the Maya. But when he got back, he started an international trading business, did pretty well for himself. And in 1995, got screwed over by some of his partners. In 96, we went down to Mexico as a family and he was looking for the next thing. He decided that he wanted to change industries, start something new. So we saw a Mayan shaman and the Mayan shaman said to him, you're going to create something that's going to clean up the world. And he had no wow. idea what it meant at the time. And we didn't realize it until about eight months later. He was at this energy conference and people were talking about all the different ways of turning waste into energy, right? Because there are plenty of ways you can use pyrolysis, gasification, even incineration makes energy from right? But they're not efficient. They don't create clean energy. They create a lot of waste and harmful byproducts, and they're very polluted, right? Incineration creates a ton of air pollution. Pyrolysis and gasification are extremely inefficient technologies, and they create pretty harmful byproducts. My father sat there and I said, there's got to be a better way. So started hitting the books and tried to reverse engineer Mother Nature. And that's where the first stage of our process was born. And we started running with it. He did pretty well. And we ran into some hiccups. I started working with the company in about 2006. At about 15 years old, we had a research center on the Philadelphia Naval Base. And I go down there and I'm thinking, hey, I'm learning science. I'm going to be a cool scientist. I get down there at 15. And I call my dad and I say, hey, I'm just getting to the plant. What's my job going to be? And he tells me, well, there's a shutout back. There's gas cans, the lawnmower and the weed whacker get to work.
0: Oh, come on, Dad.
1: <laughs> so okay. My first week okay. working for the family business at the research center, I was the gardener. Went around and I made the place look good. The following okay. summer, I got to go back down and finally start getting hands-on with experiments and working with our team down there. So at about 16, I was really starting to get into the family business. I ended up going to school. And then in 2008, it was the first major hiccup that happened with the family and technology. My father's company at the time tried to release an IPO. It was actually the IPO released the same week of the market crash. So it was just really unfortunate timing. Uh, The company filed for bankruptcy, came out restructured. But at the time, they were doing pretty well. They had been on the cover of Discover Magazine several times. They were on History Channel, Discovery Channel, cover of New York Times. They were all over the place. My science teachers were always talking to me. Hey, I saw your dad in the newspaper, yada, yada. It was very cool. But when all this happened, they came out, they restructured. And in 2012, a lot of people don't know this, but the government at the time stripped the biofuel program they took all the incentives away from the biofuels and put them in favor of wind and solar. It caused the biofuel collapse. About 70% of biodiesel companies at the time went out of business because they were really trying to make their money on incentives and what they call RINs, renewable identification numbers. Now, our company, our technology, we were using waste, so we were, weren't really in the same predicament as these biodiesel companies, but it caused the market to collapse. So all these incentives and all the, the money that was available to grow renewable energy was gone. So our board of director- directors, directors at the time wanted to bring in some fresh money. And my father had a deep dive done on the guy that was supposed to invest. And it was turned out to be a bad guy and said, basically, if you take this guy's money, I will resign from the company. and I'll walk away. And they didn't listen to him. They took his money and my father resigned. So they cleared house. They fired me, my older brother, and basically anybody that was loyal to my father. And this guy who came in, he bought the company, stripped and sold most of the assets and then bankrupted it basically. So all the rights to the technology back six months later. And we started again, a company out of Turkey reached out to my father the same day we got the technology rights back and the company's name was Maya Holt. So we were like, oh my gosh, this could only be fate. So things go great in Turkey. I ended up living in Istanbul for five years. That's where I met my wife and the co-founder of Eden Energy. But I lived there for five years and we developed a beautiful facility. We designed, I should say, a beautiful facility for the city of Istanbul. We're going to process 1,500 tons of the garbage a day. We're going to make about 5% of their energy. So we're going to process about 10% of their waste and make about 5% of their energy from one facility we finished that design in may of 2016. I was one of the lead engineers on that project so it was a really amazing experience to be a part of that and then in july there was the failed coup d'etat and the country just completely went belly up it went from about two and a half lira to the dollar today it's about 30 lira to the so in 2017, I had just basically lost my family business for the third time due to political reasons outside of our control. We always had a working technology, but political issues and different things, geopolitical issues caused the, the business model to fail. So I came back and got involved with some other scientists and started that stem cell company. And the founder turned out to be somebody that we really didn't want to be too involved. Just different wavelengths, more focused on money instead of doing the good things. And I don't want to be a part of a company that's just focused on money. I need to be doing something good. I need to, I, okay. I could be a salesman for any company in the world, but I need to be able to believe in the product that I'm selling, right? And Absolutely, 100%. Of- I can't work for a company that I don't believe is actually doing good for mankind because I was raised to to do good things. We called my father God's janitor growing up. So the stem cell company led into the pandemic. And because of some things, we weren't able to access any of that money that the government was giving out. So it gave us reason to shut down the company. So we shut it down, but I got to learn some amazing things, get an inside look at the biomedical industry, and I didn't like what I saw. So it was another reason to get out. And then I ended up back here in New York, and that was when I got introduced to Jim Gale, who was just launching Food Forest Abundance. And I joined on as a founding partner and helped him really build that organization. And it was in March of 2020, someone said to me, hey, you got to really bring the technology back to the world. And I started really looking at it and all the different options, and there was an opportunity to start fresh. Unfortunately, my father's not involved with the company anymore, but he believes in me that I'll be able to give the technology to the world. So what we're doing now, instead of building these big, massive biorefineries, we're building portable, scalable, and modular units. Instead of it being a centralized way of getting rid of the waste, we want it to be a decentralized way. So instead of a $150 million, 1,500 ton per day facility, you have a piece of equipment that could process five to 10 tons a day that only costs a couple million bucks. But now Now it's sitting on site where the waste is produced. So we cut out a lot of the headaches and a lot of the issues. And instead of selling, we create fuels and fertilizers. Instead of selling the fuel, which is a very volatile market, our fuel will burn as is carbon neutral, clean burning, low sulfur, no mercury, no lead, none of the harmful compounds found in fossil fuels because of the way the process works and we're just going to convert it to electricity. So a waste producer, and let's use a slaughterhouse as a great example. A slaughterhouse has all this organic waste that they have to pay to be taken off site. Now they can process all the waste on site And power their facility from their waste while creating regenerative energy, cutting back on all the harmful issues revolving around waste disposal. So that's kind of the background in a nutshell. As I said, it's been a real long journey to get here. And I've had a lot of responsibility on my shoulders since the day I graduated college, which brings me to the experiences and knowledge base that I've been able to acquire. But my life goal now is to take what I've been gifted and took advantage of, right? I did take advantage of those opportunities given to me but make sure that I give back to the world. And that's where Eden Energy really comes in because our mission and vision is to restore Eden. It's to restore the world to an Eden-like state. And we have now the process to do it. Wow.
0: Okay, amazing. I have got several questions. And I love everything that you've shared so far. And so I'll start with a personal question. You lived in Turkey for five years, you met the woman that you would marry there. What's it like living in Turkey? Because all I ever hear about Turkey is news stories that are not positive. And you live there, you met the woman of your dreams there. So can you give me a little bit of like real perspective? What's life on the ground in Turkey? What's that like? Sure. So the way
1: I can explain it, all the bad stories come out of one very specific area and that's the southeastern area which shares a border with Syria and Lebanon and all those tough neighbors, right? I lived in Istanbul. Turkey's about I think a population of about 80 million and nearly like 15 and a half to 20 million live in Istanbul. It's a very European-esque city. So for me, the western side of Turkey is it's Greece, right? But it's just a different language and a different, we'll say a very similar food too, because up until 1923, they were the same country, right? They were the Ottoman Empire. And it was only in 1923 when Turkey really gained its independence. So where I got to live, I got to travel the whole Western part of the country, go to Cappadocia, where they have the huge chimneys and the underground cities, see ruins from Romans, and Greeks, and all this really amazing history. Turkey is really a spectacular a spectacular country. The food is exquisite. The people are phenomenal. You hear all these horror stories of Americans going abroad and getting disrespected. It does not happen in Turkey. Everywhere I went, people just wanted to talk to me, learn more about where I'm from. They hear I'm from New York. And I grew up very close to New York City. So basically, a lot of times I say I'm from New York City, I grew up six miles from John F. Kennedy Airport, right? So on the border of New York City and Long Island, it's been a really amazing place to grow up, or to not grow up, but to grow into who I became, because I lived there between 2013 and really 2018. And I was there probably nine or 10 months out of the year, I would cycle back to the US for any work that had to get done here. But it was an amazing experience that I wouldn't have traded for anything.
0: Thank you for sharing that, because it totally changes my worldview on Turkey. Completely. I had no idea from the voice of someone who's lived there that it was like that. So that's fantastic to hear. And let's talk about the business for a second, because I heard you say that when you were in Turkey, the big device could do like 1,500 tons a day, that's like $150 million dollar you know, project, uh, and it could transform and take 10% of the city's daily waste. It's
1: producing about 18,000 tons a day, and we were going to take 1,500 of it. So a little bit less than 10% of the the daily municipal solid waste. So just the stuff that you throw in the garbage bin.
0: Okay. So by that metric, if you could take 10% of the waste away for a $150 million facility, then why not just do 10 of those facilities and take it all away? That's a lot of money. I'm not just flippantly saying, hey, here's a billion dollars. But it seems like if this is a way to take it away, why didn't we have more people buy in or more buy into it?
1: That's an amazingly good question. And it's still one that I rack my brain about because the technology has been proven time and time again to exist. And it's almost like there has been a force that has stopped it from happening. And it depends on what you believe in. At this point, I've really found my spirituality and my faith in a higher power. And it was because it wasn't the proper way to roll out the tech. The centralized model where you control everything, where you have to sell the fuels, where it's just in one location, it's there's too many holes where issues can happen. And we've learned a lot of those issues. A perfect example was our first partner that we were working with was a food company. And there was a big food company owned a bunch of brands and this food company was paying us $30 a ton for the offals, So to take the blood, the guts, the bones, the feathers, all the stuff that they weren't really using from their slaughterhouse. But that big company sold that brand. And the stipulation in the contract was that any contracts that were existing could be renegotiated. So when this new big company came in, bought the smaller brand, they renegotiated negotiated the terms. And instead of paying us $30 a ton for the waste, they turned around and said, No, 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 you guys are making money on this waste, you now have to pay us for it. And they started charging us $30 a ton. So in the course of about three months, we went from receiving $30 a ton to take the waste to having to pay for our feedstock. And that was a major issue. That was one of the big issues we had early on. So that was one of the things that said, why do I want to be the one processing the waste? I want to be the one creating the equipment and I want to give the equipment to the waste producer and have them process their own waste because they're not going to shorthand themselves. So if I just cut out the whole experience of me saying, hey, I need your waste and I just sell the equipment instead, it's a much easier business model. And it's a better business model in my eyes because you get the technology in the hands of more people.
0: Yeah. So you had that experience, you shifted your perspective on it. And then I think at some point you said that there was political changes as well, which also added to the challenge of doing it over there in Turkey.
1: That when there was the failed coup d'etat and the government just went crazy, they were right after the coup, I think they arrested something like 30,000 school teachers, something like 50,000 reporters. So it was just an absolute mess. So the country basically collapsed. And it's really been horrible for me to see, because I obviously have family who lives in Turkey. My wife's family is all there. So to see what has happened to the country, and we think we have it tough here with the food prices here, but food has become a luxury in Turkey turkey meat and things like that things that we take for granted being able to buy here over there it's even more expensive the average people over there can't really afford groceries anymore it's really terrible what's happened with the politics there
0: okay so we talked about a little bit about turkey through all of this by the way you have managed to not only survive but figure out a way to make a comeback because the company's been shut down at least three or four times so you've had to start over a number of times yeah. And this amazing idea, you figure out a way to actually bring it to reality. And then you kept having all of these hurdles thrown your way. Politics, government, vendors, companies being sold, all of this. And then Turkey. So you're now over here. You've gone from the model in one place to more of a decentralized local model where people can get their local equipment. I'm wondering if the equipment can take down five or 10 tons a day and it's a million or two million dollars to get the devices. Is this a matter of just where is the money that we can now make this something we can scale and solve our clean energy problem? Is that the big problem we're working on right now? just we need to find people that have that kind of money. What's next? Because it sounds so beautiful. It sounds like we're on the cusp of solving like a major world problem and obstacles keep showing up everywhere. So what's next? (laughs) I guess that's the question. What's next?
1: Right now, we're just in the process of relaunching. We're doing some fundraising right now to build our first mobile system. So the first one we're going to build is going to be processing about a ton a day and it's going to be on wheels. It's going to be in about a 24 foot cargo trailer. And we're going to be able to take that and show everybody what the technology can do. that's going to be one of our systems that will be available. That's going to be more for like the, the smaller time waste producers, like a, a mid-scale farm or a small shop, maybe a grocery store, things like that. People that are producing close to a ton of waste a day, but that will be on wheels. We're calling that the Eden Energy System Light Mobile. And then we're going to yep. build a two ton per day system It's going to be in a 40 foot container. And then we're going to build a seven to 10 ton per day system that's going to be in three or four 40 foot containers, depending on how big the generators. But basically what we have is a eight-stage process or an eight-step process that can convert all carbon-based waste simultaneously in a wet and mixed stream into clean-burning, carbon-neutral, regenerative fuels, a fuel gas and a fuel oil, and organic fertilizers with no waste stream or byproducts ourselves. The technology is over 85% energy efficient, and we think with our new changes that we're adding, we'll be able to get that to over 100% energy efficient, which would be really cool, but we're looking forward to the opportunity. Creating new science. Science is always fun, and that's something I get to do on a daily basis. So that's why when anybody ever asks, I say my struggles to get here, losing all the businesses that I've lost and learning all the different things that I have have been difficult. I never had a a frown on my face, even during the most difficult times, because I still get to do what I'm doing. Nothing great ever comes easy, right? And as long as I can keep forward, that's what's important.
0: So I'm not sure how to phrase my next question. I wrote down, why are we not hearing some major politician not writing this and saying this is how we solve the energy problem? Because it sounds brilliant, beautiful. It sounds like it solves the climate challenge. If there's people have climate stuff stuck on their brain, this sounds like something that will solve that. All right? So I'm wondering, why is everyone not going crazy over this right now? Because I don't think they know. Because
1: we haven't been in the U.S. for such a long time, and we really haven't been making any waves so we've really kind of things have just been pretty quiet over the past decade or so we just okay. people don't know what's really available out there what's available to be utilized and that's one of the reasons why we are starting to go public now because we're ready to let the world know that there is a better way that there is hope that all of this harmful, hazardous pollution can be handled safely and converted into clean, regenerative energy. We're able to neutralize heavy metals. We're able to destroy pathogens and toxins. So it is the ultimate cleanup device. A perfect example is that East palestine train derailment All that contaminated soil, instead of being exploded, could have went through our machine and we could have completely neutralized the toxins without it leaching into the environment. The BP oil spill in the Gulf, all that sludge and emulsified oil that is bound with water, we could have processed that through our system and completely removed the water and separated everything and had a clean regenerative fuel as a result. So we're going to be able to clean up after environmental disasters. We're going to be able to clean up all the waste that is produced, all the harmful byproducts, all the toxins toxins, even big oil is going to love us because big oil has toxic waste streams that they can now process through our system and turn it into clean regenerative energy instead of a major cost for them. So these systems are having ROI that are going to blow people's minds because of how energy efficient they are. And the fact that there is no waste products, every single piece or every single item that comes out of the system has a value. The only real byproduct is a gray water stream, which you can either filter and put through an RO system for drinking in potable water or you can use it for irrigation for a food forest
0: wow well so let me start over what is the biggest challenge or obstacle that we're facing right now to bring this dream to reality and to bring this amazing technology to the world jonathan
1: Well, right now, the only thing holding us back is funding. We're in the middle of fundraising, as I mentioned. So just getting the proper money in the bank to build the equipment because we do have high capex, right? I mean, we have capital expenditures when you're buying reactors and vessels and trailers and high pressure fittings and valves and all those different pieces that go into creating our equipment. It's just a high capex. And that's really the only thing holding us back at this moment. Our design is done. Our system is fully quoted. We're ready to be built. We've raised enough money to order our long lead time items. So we will have our first system built by the end of April, which we're really excited for. Basically, all I'm doing is taking what we've built in the past and putting it in a mobile version. So I've already built this technology in its earlier infancy stages at 15 tons and 250 tons a day. And we designed that 1,500 ton per day facility that unfortunately never got built, but I'm not reinventing anything. All I'm doing is taking it and putting it in something that is portable and modular. So it's not like we have to raise money to invent the technology or create the technology Like, as I mentioned, we had a showcase this past weekend at our lab just outside of Austin, Texas, in Leander. So we've got a beautiful thousand-square-foot building there with all of our equipment there, with our simulation system that simulates the process. This past weekend, we took used motor oil, used cooking oil, dog poop, eggs, shredded waste plastics, and we converted that into our regenerative fuel oil. And that video is going to be ready. It's January 18th today. I know this is going out in a few weeks. But that video should be ready within the next 48 hours. So we're going to be able to show the world really what we're capable of. And we're going to start really telling people more about
0: it. Yeah. Can we link that or what's the link that we can put in the show? notes? Is it going to go to your energy process website or can we get a link for that? Yeah, uh, we will definitely provide a link for it once it's ready. Yeah. So when you're listening to this right now, dear listener, then go to the show notes. And and if you want to see the proofs in the pudding, go and check out this link in the video and see exactly what we're talking about, because this is an amazing concept. You're going to get to see it live, like in reality, as we bring it to life. You've used a number of words that a simple person like me, because I'm not a scientist, at least I may be a social scientist, but the type of science that you do and understanding all of that. Show me what it looks like so I can visually grasp it, understand it. And we're going to get to see that, team. So go and check that out in the show notes. Jonathan, what question did I not ask about these topics today that you feel I should ask or you'd like to answer? I guess the
1: only thing really is what Eden Energy is really setting out to do because of what we're able to do. I think that's really the only thing that hasn't been covered from what we should cover here. And with the ability of the process to not have to really do any type of changes to the waste up front outside of just simple shredding and grinding so we can get things into the reactors, just particle size reduction, and we can take all waste at the same time. So you can have food waste mixed with human waste, with, mixed with plastic waste, and you can process that all at the same time with not a single issue. So ocean plastics, wow, a thing of the past, because one of the major things with ocean plastics is you can't recycle, right? Let's just call a spade a spade, polyethylene, terephthalate PET, which is your water bottles, and your HDPE, which is your big jugs of like laundry detergent like the hard plastics they can't be recycled at the same time you can't right So all this floating ocean plastic, what they have to do is like the ocean cleanup. They go out, they collect it, they bring it onto the boat, they separate it into the different types of plastic, and then they bring it onto shore. If they had one of our systems on board, they can process all the plastic at the same time, even if there's dead fish floating in there. If there's ropes, if there's fiberglass, and anything else that gets in there, it can now all just be shredded and processed at the same time. And a passing ship would be able to come by, take the fuel, load up the fuel, and just continue driving. So it would be like a floating gas station that uses waste as its fuel source. We're able to do that at every scale. So we can process hazardous, harmful compounds that contain mercury and sulfur and knock them out. We can take coal and we can remove the mercury and the sulfur from coal. So you actually have clean coal, right? And people will say, oh, well, then you still have the CO2 issue. But if you really remove the pollution from the equation, you take out the mercury, the sulfur, the nitrous oxide compounds, all these harmful bad actors that are a result of the combustion of the fossil fuels. CO2 isn't a problem. CO2 is plant fertilizer. I mean, you look at all these politicians and pseudoscientists saying that CO2 is destroying the world i'm sitting there saying no co2 is literally the gas of life if it weren't for co2 we wouldn't be here and because of the elevated co2 levels we're at the greenest point in human history around the globe and that's something that's even confirmed by nasa even though they try to twist it and say oh it's not a good thing the world is greener than it's ever been in human evolutionary history right now because of all the co2 right So it's really difficult to break a lot of the lessons and education that have been given by people who maybe don't understand the science fully. And I think a lot of the reporting that gets put out that you see on Twitter, that you see on Instagram, I think a lot of it is so overblown and so much exaggerations and not looking at the actual science and just looking at a small snippet of a small piece of a small bit of data that blows things out of proportion that people have lost hope. And what we really wanna do, our mission and vision is to restore hope. And it's to show that we have a technology that can get rid of all this pollution and create the solution, right? And as Jim puts it, the problem is the solution. In our case, the problem really is the solution. So the problem is all this hazardous waste, but now it's not waste. And my partner, one of the partners in Eden Energy, Joseph shop, He's one of the founders. He actually put it really beautifully the other day. He goes, we're going to redefine waste. Waste is no longer an issue, but waste is now a commodity because you can now process it into clean regenerative energy. So we're going to restore this world to Eden. We're going to rebuild nature and its ecosystems because no longer will these harmful byproducts be poisoning the lands. And we're going to be able to turn it into clean regenerative energy that doesn't hurt the environment. So that's really where the path we're headed. And and we're really excited for it.
0: Yes. Well, Jonathan, where can we find out more about it? Give us the social media, the website. How do do we find out more about you and Eden Energy process?
1: Sure. Well, uh, Eden Energy can be located at EdenEnergy.co. And on Instagram, we're Eden Energy Solutions. And on Twitter, we're Eden Energy X. Unfortunately, we couldn't get solutions on Twitter. Somebody already had that, even though we know we're going to be the big one. Fortunately, when you're late to the game, sometimes you can't get the right names. And me personally, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at JonathanAppel13. So J O N A T H A N A P P E L 13 on both Twitter and Instagram. Those are really the only places I'm active. I've been really heads down, so I'm not too active on either one of them, but I do go on every now and then and make some comments here and there and do a few posts. But Eden, Energy Solutions, uh, our Instagram account is really where we're going to be doing a lot of the sharing. Our co-founder and my wife, Gozde, she is our chief marketing officer and she's an expert in social media. So she's really going to be taking over and, and doing a lot of the posting and making sure that we're sharing the message of hope. And we're inspiring people to know that the world isn't coming to an end in 12 years. It's going to be here long after that. And human ingenuity, human engineering, and human experiences are going to be the reason why none of these harmful, bad predictions that they're they're talking about are going to come true because we're going to be
0: able to engineer Fantastic. a better future. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your vision today and what you've been doing and all the challenges and all the obstacles you've had to endure. And we're not through the clear yet. We're still enduring. We're still overcoming. So I just thank you for continuing the fight. I would say this is the fight for humanity, the fight for our planet, the fight for the future. It certainly feels like we're in the right place talking to the right man today. So thank you, Jonathan. It's time for the lightning round, my friend. Time to wrap things up here and ask you a few lightning questions to wrap up. The First, right. I'd like to ask you is if there have been, let's say, one to three books that have impacted you and influenced you over time, what might be one to three book recommendations from you, Jonathan?
1: Well, actually, they're books that I've really checked out recently. They've really changed my perspective on a few things. One of them is Start With Why by Simon Sinek, right? Really understanding how to build a great company. That's one that I actually recommend to everybody who joins our organization. Hey, you got to read Start With Why and understand why we're doing what we're doing, right? We're not trying to build a piece of technology. We're trying to build a message of hope. And that's really where Start With Why comes in. That's a great one for any entrepreneur really looking to, to make a, a big difference. And for me, it's really been the understanding of how to talk with people about the issues going on with the world. So one of the, the books that I've actually I'm reading it a second time now is called False Alarm by Bjorn Bjorn Lomborg. And I'm going to butcher his name, but it's, it's uh, all about yes. the, the climate change narrative and why we're not really headed towards the disaster that we see on CNN and Fox News and MSNBC. So it's not what they say it is, because if you analyze the science, it's different. And I guess those are two of the books. There's another one that also I checked out recently, uh, Apocalypse Never by Michael Schellenberger. That's another one along the same route, which is really a fantastic book. Michael Schellenberger has done great work the last couple of years, especially with Twitter files and everything he's done there. A really well-researched journalist. I mean, he doesn't put out much. Actually, I don't think I've ever seen him print a retraction which is pretty impressive. I mean, the guy does his research before he posts anything. So it's people like that I want to hear more from instead of the the fly by the wire, hey, I'll repost anything even if I don't know if it's fact-checked or anything. That's those right. are the three that, that have really, I think, resonated the most, with, at least within the last year that I've read.
0: I appreciate those answers because I think that people have probably heard of the Simon Sinek book, Start Why, and I, I love that one and I've been a fan and he is an eternal optimist. He's one of my dream guests, I might add. So I, I love, that you mentioned him, but I also love that you mentioned Michael Schellenberger. I, when I heard him on Rogan recently talking about the Twitter files, I love someone that does that much research and they're always curious, right? Yeah. What really chaps me is when people make statements and when someone challenges it, they just say, oh, you're wrong, but they don't say why. And they're not able to go deep into the science behind it. And I love that you're willing to stand up and talk about the science and, and Michael Schellenberger is as well. So I love that we can go deep and ask questions. So I appreciate your responses there. Let's go to a different one. Let's go to music. If you are a music person, I'd ask you what might be a song or a genre or an artist that really lights you up and inspires you, Jonathan? I
1: listen to a decent amount of country. I listen to a decent amount of classic rock and and some new wave, alternative rock from like the nineties. A lot of Linkin Park and Avenged Sevenfold, especially when I'm in the gym. But if chances are, if you see me with my headphones on, I'm listening to music. It's probably meditation music or some kind of Paca Bell classical. Just really notes. I study music. That's typically what I'm listening to at this point. It was actually on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day of last year. So a couple months, a couple weeks ago was the first time in almost three years where I've taken two days where I really did no work. And I did a little bit of work on both those days, but just a little bit, but I really haven't taken more than a day off in over three years between Food Forest Abundance and getting Eden Energy off the ground. So it's usually when I'm listening to music, I'm using it to focus. Uh, I have a pair of noise-canceling headphones that I'll put on and just have meditation music and be able to play that pretty low with the noise-canceling on and just really get into whatever I'm doing because the engineering drawings behind the system that we're building alone, I've got several hundred hours of work and re- designs, removing piping and valving and just making sure everything is correct and building the business, the back end, and making sure all of our accounting is in order and really doing everything that I needed to do to be the, the CEO and leader of the organization. So when you're really trying to do something like we're doing, there is no taking the foot off the accelerator and music is one of those things that helps me and it's usually meditation music that I've got on.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Last question. I'll offer you the last word today, Jonathan. This is the Eternal Optimist podcast. And when I say the words Eternal Optimist, what might that mean to you?
1: It means what I said at the beginning, it's even when life has got you down, when you're struggling financially or the raise didn't come in or whatever it is that you're dealing with, just knowing that tomorrow is going to be a good day and getting to bed and waking up, knowing that, hey, today is going to be a good day and just keeping that mindset on being optimistic about the future, being hopeful about the future, speaking it to power, right? And that's really where I think the eternal optimist means to me that you just keep believing that it's going to get better. You keep believing that you can keep pushing forward and you keep believing in yourself. And I have a strong belief in myself and my abilities, but the reason why I'm able to be where I am is because I also have the support network behind me of people who believe. And that I think is extremely important, but I think being having those optimistic views that that the world isn't as bad as we hear on the media and the fear porn and all these different pieces, I think that's that's really where it lays.